Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group, and we're studying volume 10 of this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. The title of this book is titled The Buddha's Way. Today we're going to be studying chapters 31 through 40, and the way that we do this program is someone will read the chapter, then I will share some teachings on that, and then open up to any and all questions that you guys might have. You can access all of these books from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com, and you can download them from there. You can actually study them before and or after class because you'll have the words of the Buddha, you'll have a reference back to the original source teachings in the Pali Canon, and you'll have words from me to help you further reflect and understand how to implement the teachings of the Buddha into your practice. So if this is your first time here, I'd like to welcome all of you guys to our class. And those of you guys that have been joining us regularly, welcome to you as well. Those of you guys that are in Zoom, you're welcome to participate by reading. Just electronically raise your hand. And those of you guys that are in all the other places, you can ask questions by putting those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any and all questions that you like. So I'm going to switch over to using the visual aids here so that then I'll go ahead and read if nobody volunteers to read. And then, as I mentioned, I'll share some teachings and then open up to any questions you guys might have. This is more of a study group versus a traditional style of learning. Everything that the Buddha taught is to guide you to this enlightened mental state where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. There is no belief in the teachings of the Buddha. Instead, you're learning teachings, you're reflecting on them to independently verify them, and then you're practicing them. And that's what's transforming the mind and uprooting the pollution out of your mind. So here, I'll share this first chapter of today's class, which is chapter 31. It's titled, To Proclaim Stream Entry to Yourself. When the fivefold guilty dread is eliminated in the noble disciple, and he is possessed of the four limbs of stream entry, and has well seen and well penetrated the noble discipline by wisdom, he may, if he so aspires, himself proclaim thus of himself, I am one who has cut off the doom of hell, of rebirth in the womb of an animal, in the realm of afflicted spirits. Cut off is the waste, the ill-born, the downfall. Okay, let me share here what the Buddha is actually helping you guys to understand is setting this up. He's helping you to understand that by an individual eliminating the fivefold guilty dread, which you're going to read and see here in a moment, 
and having acquired the four limbs of stream entry, which he's also going to share that, then one could proclaim of themselves, meaning you would know for yourself that you are a stream enter, which is the first stage of enlightenment. You're not going to go out on the street or on your Facebook page or anything like this and proclaim that you're a stream enter. That's not what these stages of enlightenment are for. They're for personal guidance and for personal growth. So you can learn the stages of enlightenment and how to move through these stages of enlightenment. And as you do, it'll improve the condition of your mind. But this is for your own personal growth. So the Buddha is providing you guidance of how you will know when you've actually attained the first stage of enlightenment. And he's giving you some of that guidance here, but there's other guidance as well. This isn't the only thing that you need in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, but this is one particular discourse. And then once you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you will no longer be reborn into the lower realms, which is the realm of hell, animal, or afflicted spirits. And that's what he's sharing here at the very beginning. So now he's going to continue on and help you to understand what these fivefold guilty dreads are and what the four limbs of stream entry are. And then there's some other content that he's going to share as well. A stream enter am I, one not doomed to the downfall, assured, bound for enlightenment. Now, householder, what is the fivefold guilty dread that is eliminated in him? It is that guilty dread householder, which he who kills causes in this same visible state. As a result of his killing, it is that guilty dread about the life to come, which he who kills causes. Also, that discontentedness and sadness which he experiences. By abstaining from killing, he causes no guilty dread in this same visible state, nor for the life to come. He experiences no discontentedness and sadness. Thus, in him who abstains from killing, that guilty dread is eliminated. 2. It is that guilty dread, householder, which he who takes what is not given causes in this same visible state. As a result of his taking what is not given, it is that guilty dread about the life to come which he who takes what is not given causes. Also, that discontentedness and sadness which he experiences. By abstaining from taking what is not given, he causes no guilty dread in this same visible state, nor for the life to come. He experiences no discontentedness and sadness. Thus, in him who abstains from taking what is not given, that guilty dread is eliminated. It is that guilty dread, householder, which he who is a wrongdoer in sexual desires causes in this same visible state. As a result of his being a wrongdoer in sexual desires, it is that guilty dread about the life to come which he who is a wrongdoer in sexual desires causes. Also, that discontentedness and sadness which he experiences. By abstaining from being a wrongdoer in sexual desires, he causes no guilty dread in this same visible state, nor for the life to come. He experiences no discontentedness in sadness. Thus, in him who abstains from being a wrongdoer in sexual desires, that guilty dread is eliminated. 4. It is that guilty dread, householder, which he who tells lies causes in this same visible state. As a result of his telling lies, it is that guilty dread about the life to come, 
which he who tells lies causes, also that discontentedness and sadness which he experiences. By abstaining from telling lies, he causes no guilty dread in this same visible state, nor for the life to come, he experiences no discontentedness in sadness. Thus, in him who abstains from telling lies, that guilty dread is eliminated. 5. It is that guilty dread householder, which he who is under the influence of liquor fermented and distilled, and so given to heedlessness, substances that cause heedlessness, the guilty dread which, as a result of these things, he causes in this same visible state, also about the life to come, also that discontentedness and sadness, these are not caused by him who abstains from occasions or places for taking liquor, fermented and distilled, substances that cause heedlessness. Thus, in him who so abstains, that guilty dread is eliminated. These are the five guilty dreads that are eliminated. Okay, so right here, you can see that these five guilty dreads that the Buddha is talking about are mapping into the five precepts. And in the five precepts, the Buddha gives very illuminating language that helps you to understand what those are and how to actually apply them to day-to-day -day life. So chapter seven of volume one, where you can reference the five precepts in how I've applied it to help you see how to apply it in the modern times and in daily life because the Buddha's language is timeless. It can be applied during his life 2,500 years ago as well as today because he's teaching these natural laws of existence. So here a stream enter would be practicing the five precepts very closely. They would have no longer been making decisions opposite of the five precepts for an extended period of time to be able to get to that enlightened mental state where the mind is in that first stage of enlightenment. And in that first stage of enlightenment, there's various things that you're gonna to need to learn and there's various benefits that you're going to observe because you would have already moved through the four jhanas and now in the first stage of enlightenment, your discontentedness would be a mere fraction of what it once was. So those painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, displeasure. Those are just a fraction of what one would have once experienced when they're off the path to enlightenment by the time they get to the first stage of enlightenment. And now they're going to experience the benefits of that as well as an improved condition of mind with more focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and a better memory. The mind isn't actually enlightened yet, so there is still some discontentedness, but they're well on their way. And by the time someone gets to the first stage of enlightenment, their mind won't regress backwards from that point. There's a retreat coming up in January where I'm going to be teaching all the teachings you need to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment. And this is part of those teachings, the five precepts. But I also teach this in other programs and classes and courses and retreats as well. So now there's more content here where the Buddha is going to move on to the four limbs of stream entry. These are the five guilty dreads that are eliminated. And of what four limbs of stream entry does he possess? One, herein, householder, the noble disciple is possessed of unwavering confidence in the perfectly enlightened one. Thus, the perfectly enlightened one is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct fortunate, knower of the worlds, 
unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one. Two, he is possessed of unwavering confidence in the teachings. Thus, the teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally experienced by the wise. Three, he is possessed of unwavering confidence in the community. Thus, the community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is practicing the wholesome way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. This community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. 4. He is possessed of the virtues, moral conduct, dear to the noble ones. In the virtues, moral conduct, dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unblotched, liberating, praised by the wise, not misunderstood, and leading to concentration. These four limbs of stream entry he possesses. Okay, so these are four things that you see the Buddha talking about regularly as it relates to moving and making progress on the path. Here you've got the confidence in the Buddha, confidence in his teachings, confidence in the community, and then also have developed a certain amount of moral conduct. In order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need these things, and you might develop those over a period of time. When you first come to the path to enlightenment, you might have doubt about the Buddha, his teachings, the community, and your moral conduct may not be going very well. You might be doing things in terms of wrong intention, wrong speech, or wrong action, wrong livelihood that you need to clean up. So by learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings of the Buddha, you can see the gradual improvement to the condition of the mind, and more and more you'll see this confidence in the Buddha, confidence in his teachings, and confidence in the community come shining through because you're starting to notice the improvement to the condition of the mind, that you realize, oh my goodness, this person taught something 2,500 years ago, and I'm independently verifying it now, and I can see that it's true and it's improving the condition of the mind. And you can see his teachings that they're absolutely leading to this improved condition of mind. And as you interact with the community of people, you can see the support and the encouragement along the path to be able to help you get to this improved mental state. So these are the three things that you would need called the triple gem or the triple jewel in order to really start making your way towards enlightenment, where you have confidence in the Buddha, you have access to his teachings, and you're part of a community. If you just had one or two of these things, you wouldn't actually be able to get to enlightenment. So if you had confidence in the Buddha, but you didn't have access to his teachings and you weren't part of a community, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. Or if you just had access to his teachings, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. Or if you were just part of a community, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. Or even if you had just two of these things. So you need all three of them. You need confidence in the Buddha, confidence in the teachings, and confidence in the community. Or sometimes I refer to it as confidence in the Buddha, access to his teachings, and be part of an actual community. So this is the triple gem or the triple jewel, and this takes time for an individual to accumulate these things and then build the confidence in these things. And then as you're building the confidence in those, you're also learning the moral conduct 
mainly the five precepts is what's helping you with that. But you can also see that in the Eightfold Path, which really illuminates it even more because the five precepts are plugging into the Eightfold Path and giving you more detail around what it takes to improve your moral conduct. And by improving your moral conduct, what you're actually doing is learning the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result. You can see this causality, or the results of your decisions, that as you gain this wisdom on the natural law, you're no longer confused, you're no longer misunderstanding, you're no longer having the unknowing of true reality, that you can see this clear delineation. You can see these clear natural laws of the natural law of gamma, of how it affects every being, whether you're aware of it or not. And the more wisdom that you cultivate on this natural law of gamma around moral conduct, you can improve your moral conduct, and then you'll see improvement in your personal and professional relationships because you're improving your intentions, your speech, your actions, your livelihood, and you'll start seeing that these personal professional relationships will really blossom because now you're functioning in a more and more wise way, in a wholesome way. And this is what a stream enter is going to have improved. So here the Buddha goes on to share some other details about what a stream enter would have already learned and understood in order to get to that first stage of enlightenment. And what in him is the noble disciple that is well seen and well penetrated by wisdom? Herein, householder, the noble disciple thus reflects, this being that is, by the arising of this that arises, this not being that is not, by the ending of this that comes to be eliminated. That is to say, because of ignorance, a knowing of true reality, the volitional formations, choices, and decisions. Because of volitional formations, consciousness. Because of consciousness, name and form. Because of name and form, the six sense spaces. Because of the six sense spaces, contact. Because of contact, feeling. Because of feeling, craving. Because of craving, clinging. Because of clinging, existence. Because of existence, birth. Because of birth, aging and death, grief, displeasure, and pain, sadness and despair come into being. Thus is the arising of this whole mass of discontentedness. But with the diminishing and complete elimination without remainder of ignorance, unknowing of true reality, the ending of volitional formations, choices and decisions, with the ending of volitional formations, the ending of consciousness, with the ending of consciousness, the ending of name and form. With the ending of name and form, the ending of the six sense spaces. With the ending of the six sense spaces, the ending of contact. With the ending of contact, the ending of feeling. With the ending of feeling, the ending of craving. With the ending of craving, the ending of clinging. With the ending of clinging, the ending of existence. With the ending of existence, the ending of birth. With the ending of birth, aging and death, grief, displeasure, and pain, sadness and despair are eliminated to become. Thus is the ending of this whole mass of discontentedness, and this for him is the noble discipline well seen, well penetrated by wisdom. Now, householder, for the noble disciple, these five guilty dreads are eliminated, and he is possessed of these four limbs of stream entry, and for him, this noble discipline is well seen and well penetrated by wisdom. If he so aspires, himself 
may proclaim of himself, destroyed is hell for me, destroyed is birth in the womb of an animal, destroyed is the realm of afflicted spirits, destroyed is rebirth in the waste, the ill-born, the downfall, in hell, a stream enter am I, one not doomed to the downfall, one assured, bound for enlightenment. Okay, so this last part here that the Buddha is talking about, which is something that you would have well seen and well penetrated by wisdom before you've attained the first stage of enlightenment, what he's referring to here is dependent origination. And we're going to be studying dependent origination as part of our class today. It's chapter 40. So dependent origination is something that you would need to learn. You would need to reflect on it. You would need to penetrate it and be able to see the truth and clarity of the whole entire teaching. The dependent origination is the highest, most ultimate truth that the Buddha is teaching. With the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, all these other things, he's teaching you things that are leading to your enlightenment and leading to the elimination of rebirth. But it's the dependent origination which is showing you the detail and the work of exactly how that is all coming to be. He's explaining to you how you come into the world to be born. He's explaining to you how discontentedness arises. But then he's also explaining to you how to eliminate it as well. So while the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, these are the detailed teachings that you need and others to be able to make your way to enlightenment, it's all being supported and explained and understood through dependent origination. Dependent origination is the real core in the heart of what the Buddha is teaching. That's why it's the highest, most ultimate truth or the highest law of nature explaining to you how you come into the world with continuous rebirth and then how you experience discontentedness. So you're going to need to penetrate that and understand it. And it's going to take you multiple times to revisit it, to learn it, to reflect on it, and then be able to see it in day-to-day -day life through your practice to then be able to acquire the wisdom that you need to now be able to then move into the first stage of enlightenment. So you'll need that among other things as well. And then, of course, the Buddha summarizes this by saying, okay, these are the five guilty dreads that one must eliminate. And then they possess these four limbs. And then they've penetrated this wisdom of dependent origination. And having done so, along with other things that are in other discourses, then an individual will know that they're an actual stream enter. You're no longer going to be reborn into the lower realms of hell animal or afflicted spirit. If you die in the first stage of enlightenment, you will come back into the human world. And from there, you will have more opportunities to be able to get to enlightenment or close to enlightenment. A maximum of seven rebirths is what you experience the first time that you attain the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enterer. So let me know if you guys have any questions on this chapter. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see your question. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, it looks like Mayuli has a question here. I have confidence in the Buddha, confidence in his teachings. I have confidence in you. Is that considered the community? Where I live, there is no community that practices the true words of the Buddha. That's great that you have confidence in those things, Mayuli. The community that the Buddha is talking about is the wider community, that you're part of this community. It's an online community. It's not a in-person community because we're not all living in the same place. We're all over the world. It's an international community. We meet here online. We meet 
at the temple here in Chiang Mai, and it's an international community. And if you had interactions with our community, you're going to see at least what I see when I'm around community members is nothing but love and kindness and compassion and politeness and respect and support and encouragement for each other. And that's what you'll see in a community of people who are helping each other to be able to get to enlightenment, helping in terms of supporting each other. You're not measuring and comparing. You're not judging each other. You're looking at each other fondly and you're interested in seeing people get to enlightenment because if members of our community are getting into the four stages of enlightenment and actually getting to enlightenment, this is really wonderful for our community because the more people that are enlightened, within our community, the better. So maybe you just haven't had enough experiences to interact with other members of the community to be able to develop that confidence. But it's great that you have confidence on these things. And now as you come to Chiang Mai, as you meet online, as you interact with people through our online and in-person international community, perhaps you can start to develop confidence around the entire community. Okay, it looks like Francis has a question here as well. How can we know when we are ready to declare us stream enters? So there's multiple criteria. The primary criteria is that you're going to have eliminated the first three fetters, personal existence view, doubt, and wrong behavior and observances. These are three individual pollutions that the Buddha discovered, and you will have eliminated those three. And in various classes, courses, and retreats, I explain what those three fetters are, what symptoms you're going to see if those fetters exist in the mind. I teach you how to actually eliminate them with certain tools and techniques and practices. And then I also teach how to know when you have eliminated it. So if you haven't learned this from me yet, this January 21st through the 26th, I will be teaching a retreat where I'll be sharing all those things, everything you need to get to the first stage of enlightenment, and I will be going through those particular fetters. That's the primary criteria, but there's other criteria as well. You're going to need to know dependent origination. You're going to need to know the five aggregates. You're going to need to know the six sense bases. You're going to need to have developed generosity, be practicing what's called accomplishment in generosity, where you're living open-handedly without selfishness. These are some of the teachings that you're going to need in order to eliminate those first three fetters. So it's those first three fetters that are the real indicator of whether somebody's gotten into stream entry. And then there's these other teachings that you will have learned and understood. And there are certain criteria that I lay out in that retreat based on the words of the Buddha to help you be able to see that you've attained the first stage of enlightenment. At this point, I would encourage everybody to continue to learn the Eightfold Path which includes the three universal truths and four noble truths, the five precepts, extensive meditation training, and those kinds of things, because that's what's going to lead you to moving into the jhanas and then ultimately getting into the first stage of enlightenment. But now, in this particular program of the Pali Canon and English Study Group in the retreat that I'm teaching in January, I'm helping students to be able to learn all those other things like the six sense bases, the five aggregates, dependent origination, developing accomplishment and generosity, and all the other things that you're going to need to really propel you into that first stage of enlightenment and eliminate those first three fetters. 
You will notice in addition to these things that the mind will have significantly reduced discontentedness. It'll be just a mere fraction of what you once experienced. And of course, as the Buddha sharing here, you're going to be practicing the five precepts. You're going to have confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community. You're going to be practicing virtuous moral conduct and all these kinds of things. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So I'm going to move on to chapter 32. This one is titled, Three Kinds of Wonders. There are three kinds of wonders. Kavata, I'm just going to use the word student when he refers to this person because I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing his name properly. Which I, having myself understood and realized them, have made known to others. What are the three? One, the mystic wonder. Two, the wonder of mind reading. And three, the wonder of instruction. One, in what student is the mystic wonder? In this case, student, suppose that a brother enjoys the possession in various ways of mystic power. From being one, he becomes multiform. From being multiform, he becomes one. From being visible, he becomes invisible. He passes without hindrance to the further side of a wall or a battlement or a mountain as if through air. He penetrates up and down through solid ground as if through water. He walks on water without dividing it as if a solid ground. He travels cross-legged through the sky like the birds on wing. He touches and feels with the hand even the moon and the sun, beings of mystic power and potency, though they be, he reaches even in the body up to the heavenly realm. And some believer of trusting heart should behold him doing so. Then that believer should announce the fact to an unbeliever, saying, Wonderful, sir, and marvelous is the mystic power and potency of that aesthetic. Then that unbeliever should say to him, Well, sir, there is a certain charm called the Gandhara charm. It is by his own ability that he performs all this. Now, what do you think, student? Might not the unbeliever say so? Yes, sir, he might. Well, student, it is because I perceive danger in the practice of mystic wonders that I disagree and refrain from and am reluctant to perform. Two, in what student is the wonder of mind reading? Suppose in this case, student, that a brother can make known the heart in the feelings, the reasonings, and the thoughts of other beings, of other individuals, saying, so-and-so is in your mind. You are thinking of such and such a matter. Thus and thus are your emotions. And some believer of trusting heart should see him doing this. Then that believer should announce the fact to an unbeliever, saying, Wonderful, sir, and marvelous is the mystic power and potency of that aesthetic. Then that unbeliever should say to him, Well, sir, there is a charm called the jewel charm. It is by his own ability that he performs all this. Now what do you think, student? Might not the unbeliever say so? Yes, sir, he might. Well, student, it is because I perceive danger in the practice of the wonder of mind reading that I disagree and refrain from 
and I'm reluctant to perform. Okay, I'm going to pause here and explain to you what's going on before I move on further. What the Buddha is talking about are certain abilities that some people start to experience as they're getting closer and closer to enlightenment. This mystic wonder and this wonder of mind reading. This is something that you might experience where an individual can actually perform miracles. That's this first one. And the second one is where one can actually read the mind and the thoughts and emotions of another person. And this is something that you can experience oftentimes as the pollution of mind is lifting out of the mind, you can experience these kinds of things. And the Buddha is saying that I don't actually perform these things. I don't do these things, even though he knows this is part of the path to enlightenment. Because if he performed this particular miracle or he performed this mind reading, then somebody could see him do that and then kind of believe like, okay, wow, look how wonderful he is that he can perform these things. And then that person might go and talk to somebody else that wasn't there at that event. And then that person might say, oh, that person doesn't have any special abilities. It's just these charms that they have, this Gandhara charm or this jewel charm. That's what's allowing them to be able to do that. It's not their actual ability that they're doing that. It's this special charm that they have. And the Buddha says this is a real danger if you perform these miracles or this mind reading because people will start to talk and gossip essentially and maybe even slander. And it's unwise to do these kinds of things. And this is almost just kind of like showing off, right? This would be the conceit of the mind. And the Buddha is saying, I don't do these things, right? Because the Buddha doesn't have conceit. He doesn't have ego. So he doesn't need to go around performing miracles or doing mind reading in order to convince people of his ability to help guide them to enlightenment. Instead, he's going to talk about this wonder of instruction. That's what he actually does. He doesn't do these miracles. He doesn't do this mind reading. Instead, he has the ability to provide guidance and instruction, education, and helping people to learn the natural laws of existence. And that's what he says that he actually performs. So here's what he's going to share here. And what student is the wonder of instruction? Suppose, student, that a brother teaches thus, reason in this way, do not reason in that way, consider thus and not thus, get rid of this disposition, train yourself and remain in that. This student is what is called the wonder of instruction. And further student, suppose that a Tathagata is born into the world, one who has won the truth, an arahant, a fully awakened one, abounding in wisdom and goodness, joyful, who knows all worlds, unsurpassed as a guide to humans, willing to be led, a teacher of gods and humans, a perfectly enlightened one, a Buddha. He, by himself, thoroughly knows and sees, as it were, face to face this universe, including the worlds above, of the gods, the Brahmas, and the Maras, and the world below, with its aesthetics and Brahmins, its princes and people, and having known it, he makes his wisdom known to others. The truth, lovely in its origin, lovely in its progress, lovely in its completion. Does he proclaim both in the spirit and in the letter, the higher life does he make known in all its fullness and in all its purity? A householder or one of his children or a man of inferior birth in any class listens to that truth, and on hearing it, he has confidence in the Tathagata, the one who has found the truth, and 
when he is possessed of that confidence, he considers thus within himself. Full of hindrances is household life, a path for the dust of passion, free as the air is the life of him who has renounced all worldly things. How difficult it is for the man who dwells at home to live the higher life in all its fullness, in all its purity, in all its bright perfection. Let me then cut off my hair and beard. Let me clothe myself in the orange-colored robes, and let me go forth from the household life into the homeless life. Then, before long, renouncing his portion of wealth, be it great or small, leaving behind his circle of relatives, be they many or be they few, he cuts off his hair and beard, he clothes himself in the orange-colored robes, and he goes forth from the household life into the homeless life. When he has thus become an aesthetic, he lives self-restrained by that restraint that should be binding on an aesthetic. Uprightness is his delight, and he sees danger in the least of those things he should avoid. He adopts and trains himself in the precepts. He encompasses himself with wholesome deeds and actions in speech. Pure are his means of livelihood. Wholesome is his conduct, guarded the doors of his senses. Mindful and self-possessed, he is altogether joyful. And how, student, is his conduct wholesome? Okay, so I'm going to pause here. The Buddha is basically explaining that the wonder of instruction is the ability to awaken to enlightenment as an actual Buddha by him getting to this ability to become enlightened on his own. He has deep, profound wisdom of what it takes to be able to get to enlightenment. And that during that time, as he teaches, he teaches about the world. He teaches about all these different realms and all these different people. He explains the holy life and how to live it to its purity and how to purify the mind. And then as he does so, there's individuals that hear him teaching and they understand his truth that he's sharing and they decide to now become ordained and actually come learn with the Buddha. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, as he's sharing here, it was very challenging to get to enlightenment as a household practitioner. Household practitioners were very busy and very occupied with things like carrying water and harvesting food and just the basic necessities to sustain life were very challenging for a household practitioner. So they didn't have much time to learn and practice the teachings, including meditation to be able to get to enlightenment. So oftentimes people would leave home. There were people who could get to enlightenment from the household life, but it wasn't as common as someone who would leave and go become ordained. Nowadays, the opportunity to get to enlightenment for a household practitioner is significantly improved because we've improved our ability to sustain our life with certain water systems, electrical systems, certain appliances that do things for us that make it so much easier for us to provide our basic necessities. And that provides us a lot of time to then be able to learn and practice the teachings. So much so that people are actually filling up their time with unbeneficial things that are taking them away from potentially learning and practicing the teachings. So the Buddha is talking about someone who's leaving home to learn and be able to get to enlightenment. And then ultimately, they develop their speech and their actions. They develop their livelihood and they're guarding their mind 
they're guarding the sense spaces with mindfulness and then the joyfulness starts to come through and the mind starting to get closer and closer to enlightenment as these qualities of enlightenment are shining through. So now he goes on to talk about this moral conduct that one would develop on their journey to enlightenment. And how, student, is his conduct wholesome? In this, student, that the monk, putting away the killing of living beings, abandoning the destruction of life, the stick in the sword he has laid aside, and reluctant to roughness, and full of mercy, he resides compassionate and kind to all creatures that have life. Student, this is called the wonder of instruction. With his mind thus serene, made pure, translucent, cultured, free of evil, flexible, ready to act, firm and imperturbable, unable to be upset or excited, calm, serene, he directs and bends down his mind to the wisdom of the destruction of the deadly floods. He knows as it really is, this is discontentedness. He knows as it really is, this is the cause of discontentedness. He knows as it really is, this is the elimination of discontentedness. He knows as it really is, this is the path that leads to the elimination of discontentedness. He knows as they really are, these are the deadly floods. He knows as it really is, this is the cause of the deadly floods. He knows as it really is, this is the elimination of the deadly floods. He knows as it really is, this is the path that leads to the elimination of the deadly floods. To him, thus knowing, thus seeing, the mind is set free from the deadly poison of craving, is set free from the deadly poison of anger, is set free from the deadly poison of ignorance, unknowing of true reality. In him, thus set free, there arises the knowledge of his liberation, and he knows rebirth has been destroyed. The holy life has been fulfilled. What had to be done has been accomplished. After this present life, there will be no beyond. Just student, as if a mountain fastness, there were a pool of water, clear, translucent, and serene, and a man standing on the bank, and with eyes to see, should perceive the oysters and the shells, the gravel and the pebbles, and the shoals of fish, as they move about or lie within it. He would know, this pool is clear, transparent, and serene, and there within it are the oysters and the shells, and the sand and gravel, and the shoals of fish are moving about or lying still. This student is what is called the wonder of instruction. So these, student, are the three kinds of wanderers I have understood and realized myself and made known to others. So here the Buddha is explaining that an individual who then embarks on this journey to get to enlightenment, they're going to now practice the elimination of killing that they're not going to see beings in with ill will, that they're going to eliminate that interest in causing harm to other beings, that they're going to live with compassion towards all beings. This is part of the Buddha's guidance and part of his instruction. And then they would also be able to see the Four Noble Truths. That's the very first part of getting on the path to enlightenment, that you would know that the problem is discontentedness, 
The cause of that is craving, desire, attachment. The elimination of that is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And the path that leads to the elimination of discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. You would know that and be able to have seen it very clearly and independently verified it in your own life. And the Buddha talks about how having purified the mind, the mind is now imperturbable, meaning that the mind is stable and steady, unable to be shaken up, that the mind can't be upset, that the mind is calm and serene. And then he talks about the elimination of craving, anger, and ignorance. That's how you actually get to enlightenment is by purifying the mind of those three poisons or those three unwholesome roots or the three fires. And having gotten to enlightenment, now the mind will be peaceful and joyful permanently for the rest of this life and there won't be any more rebirth in the cycle of rebirth because you've eliminated the causes and conditions that lead to discontentedness, and it's the same causes and conditions that lead to rebirth, which is craving, desire, attachment. As long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, you will experience discontentedness, and there will be rebirth. And just as you would see those things very clearly, the Buddha is saying, okay, by the time that you've gotten to liberation or to enlightenment, You would also be similar to standing on a certain land and looking into water, and this water is very clear. And just like you can see the oysters and the shells and the gravel and the pebbles and the fish, just as you can see through the clear water and you know that those things are there, the same thing is true with the wisdom that leads to enlightenment. By the time you get to enlightenment and the Buddha has instructed you in that and guided you in that, you would see very clearly these teachings are just so apparent and so clear. And the Buddha is calling this the wonder of instruction. And he talks in other discourses where he says this is what he actually practices. He doesn't practice those others, but this is what he actually practices is this wonder of instruction. Do you guys have any questions on this particular chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'll move on to the next one, which is chapter 33. Here, this one is titled, one who is near to nibbana or enlightenment. Monks, possessed of four qualities, a man is incapable of falling away. He is near to nibbana, enlightenment. What are the four? Herein, a monk is perfect in virtue, practicing moral conduct. He is guarded as to the doors of the sense bases. He is moderate in eating. He is devoted to watchfulness. And in what way is a monk perfect in virtue, moral conduct? Herein, a monk is virtuous. He resides restrained with the restraint of the training guidelines, perfect in the practice of right moral conduct. He sees danger in the slightest faults. He takes up and trains himself in the stages of training. Thus, a monk is perfect in virtue. And how is a monk guarded as to the doors of the sense bases? Herein, a monk, seeing a form with the eye, does not grasp at the general features or at the details. Since craving and aversion, evil, unprofitable states might flow in upon one who resides with the sense base of the eye uncontrolled. He applies himself to such control. He sets a guard over the sense base of the eye, and he attains control. When he hears a sound with the ear, or with the nose smells an odor, or with the tongue tastes a flavor, or with the body touches a physical object. When with the mind he recognizes a mental object, he does not grasp at the general features or details, 
But since craving and aversion, evil, unprofitable states might flow in upon one who resides with the sense base of the eye uncontrolled, he applies himself to such control. He sets a guard over the sense base of the ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, and attains control. That is how a monk has the doors of the sense bases guarded. And how is a monk moderate in eating? Herein, a monk takes his food thoughtfully and carefully, not for sport, not for indulgence, not for personal charm or adornment, but just enough for the support, for the continuation of the body, for its resting unharmed, to help the living of the holy life. With this thought, my former feeling I check, and I set going no new feeling. Thus maintenances shall be mine, blameless, and comfort in life. Thus a monk is moderate in eating. And how is a monk devoted to watchfulness? By day a monk walks up and down and then sits, thus purifying the mind of obstructive states. By night for the first watch he does likewise. In the middle watch of the night, lying on his right side, he takes up the lion posture, resting one foot on the other, and thus collected and composed, fixed his thoughts on rising up again. In the last watch of the night, at early dawn, he walks up and down, then sits, and so purifies the mind of obstructive states. That is how a monk is devoted to watchfulness. Possessed of these four qualities, a monk is incapable of falling away. He is near to Nibbana, enlightenment. Okay, so these are four qualities that an individual would have cultivated, and by the time they've cultivated these four things, they are very close to enlightenment. And there's other things that are indicators of one who's close to enlightenment as well. And the only reason why this is helpful for you is because you're going to need to cultivate these and set them as goals and objectives and interests to be able to work towards this. And then also as you're accomplishing these things and others, you will know that you're making your way to enlightenment. It's not like enlightenment is imminent, like tomorrow or next week or something like that. But within the next few years, you're going to be able to experience enlightenment having cultivated these things. And there's other things where the Buddha has indicated these types of things as well, where he shares with you, okay, when you're near to enlightenment, these are the types of things that you will experience. And these are four things that you will need to cultivate in order to get to the point where you're close to enlightenment. The first one is developing your moral conduct and being perfect in your moral conduct, where you're not making any faults whatsoever. And you're going to make faults on the way there, but seeing danger in the slightest fault is really helpful that you understand like, oh my goodness, if I lie even the slightest amount, it can come back and harm me. Or if I allow the ego to come into my mind just a little bit, or if I steal, or if I have sexual misconduct or any of these other things that the Buddha teaches around conduct, you will be able to see the natural law of gamma of cause and effect so clearly that if you even do one thing that's unwise, you can see the results of that coming back to you that you have been able to verify the natural law of gamma very closely like that. Then the second one is he talks about this guard to the doors of the sense spaces. Whenever the Buddha talks about guarding the doors of the sense spaces, what he's talking about is mindfulness. There's other chapters and other discourses where he talks about this real directly. Here, he doesn't mention mindfulness at all, 
kind of a little bit he does in, in certain ways, but he's essentially describing mindfulness, that that is your actual guard. That if you understand central desire, how the mind longs and yearns through these six sense bases, then it's your awareness of mind or your right mindfulness that is the guard, that you stand guard with your mindfulness and awareness of mind so that wherever you see the longing and yearning, the craving and the desire, the longing and yearning through these sense spaces, that's the guard because where you see the mind longing and yearning, you then restrain it and you pull it back and you gain this control. So in order to get to enlightenment, all that craving, desire, attachment would be eliminated. But one of the qualities that you'll need in order to get close to enlightenment, which is what the Buddha is describing here, is the ability to have this guard where you have this mindfulness and you can easily see the mind pulling towards something and you will have been able to start restraining the mind and pulling it back. At this point, what the Buddha is talking about is not the elimination of central desire yet, because that's what somebody will have achieved by the time they get to the third stage of enlightenment and then ultimately enlightenment itself. But here he's just saying you're going to need this quality of being able to have mindfulness so well developed that you can see the mind longing and yearning through these sense spaces. And as it does, you're able to restrain it and pull it back. If you just allow the mind to be uncontrolled and you know, long and yearn and not really pay attention to the mind, you don't have a guard of the mind yet. You're just still chasing after things. That might be where you're at. But what you would like to do is through your breathing mindfulness meditation and your generosity is gradually build up the ability to more readily see these cravings and to be able to restrain the mind. And having been able to build your practice up to that point, the Buddha is saying, okay, you're near to enlightenment. Now, the third quality is he's talking about moderation and eating. This is also going to help you with sensual desire, that you're able to not just sit down and gorge on food, but instead what he's talking about is just eating enough food that it helps you to sustain your life, that you're not gorging on food, but you're also not diminishing your body by not eating very much food either. That would be either side of the spectrum. So here he's saying, okay, that you're not just eating for sport. You're not eating to indulge. You're not eating for personal charm or endorment. You're just eating enough for the support and continuation of this body. That's going to allow you to spend less time eating. It's going to allow you to spend less time working and acquiring income for that. It's going to help you to be able to rest the body, that the body doesn't have to work as hard in order to digest all that food. And therefore, you'll have better access of the mind. You'll have better control of the mind too because you're not eating based on emotion. Sometimes when people get sad or angry or frustrated or irritated, you might turn to some kind of food in order to get those pleasant feelings. Because in the untrained mind, when you have craving, desire, attachment in the mind, if you get what you want, you get pleasant feelings. But if you don't get what you want, you get pain painful feelings. And when you're in those painful feelings, the untrained mind, the only way it knows how to get back to something that is somewhat comfortable is to crave something and now chase after that thing to be able to get back to pleasant feelings. But as long as you keep allowing your mind to do that, you're going to keep experiencing these cravings over and over and over again. So if you can throttle back on the food and eat in moderation and not eat based in emotion, now when your mind is in those discontent feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, and others, those painful feelings, rather than allowing the mind to crave and then get back to the conditioned pleasant feelings based on food, instead look inward and see why is it that you're experiencing those sad 
frustrated or agitated feelings, what are the cravings, desires, attachments that are causing it? And eliminate the cravings, desires, attachments so that you no longer end up in those painful feelings. If you allow the mind to then just go to food and that's how you're going to get the conditioned pleasant feelings, you're not really addressing the true problem, which is the craving, desire, attachment that you ended up in the painful feelings. So if you don't train your mind and you just go towards food, then you're not really solving the real problem of the craving, desire, attachment. By looking inward and eliminating the craving, desire, attachment, you can get to the ultimate solution where those painful feelings won't exist anymore. So eating in moderation is part of that, and you can choose to do that as you develop your practice. And then this watchfulness, the Buddha is talking about these different times of night. I imagine during their lifetime, because of where they lived and the things that existed during that time, you know, they lived oftentimes just sleeping in a park, like out in the wilderness, right? Or they were in the forest and there was a lot more animals around, a lot more things that could harm you during that time frame than there is nowadays. Nowadays, those things exist, but not as much as they did 2,500 years ago. So it sounds like they must have woke up at different times of night in order to train their mind. And I imagine it was probably also to kind of ward off any kind of animals or things like this that were coming to maybe affect them in the nighttime. So the way that I would suggest that you look at this is that as you're dozing off to sleep at night and as you're waking up in the morning, Take note of the mind and any kind of unwholesome qualities that come up in the mind is cut those off and let them go. The Buddha talks about this also in other parts of his teachings. Here he's not really honing in on that very much. He's really focused on kind of waking up at different times of night. Well, you may not wake up at different times of night, or maybe you do. Maybe you go to the bathroom. Maybe you have difficulty sleeping at different times. But from every waking moment, you should be observant of the mind. And anything that is unwholesome, cut that off and let it go, eliminate it from the mind. And anything that is wholesome, support it, encourage it, allow it to continue to grow and develop in the mind. And as you're just waking up in the morning, as you're dozing off at night, your thoughts can invade you, and you even need to be diligent at that point in time. If you're complacent, you might allow those thoughts to invade your mind and you might act upon them. So you would like to be aware and observant of the mind at all waking hours, as you're waking up in the morning, all day long, and then as you're dozing off at night. This is being devoted to watchfulness, that you're watching over the mind and being attentive to the mind, not allowing complacency to set in. So let me know if you guys have any questions on this chapter. You can put it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand and ask any questions you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So let's move on to the next chapter. This is chapter 34. This one is titled, The Supreme Development of the Sense Bases. Now, Ananda, how is there the supreme development of the sense bases in the Noble One's discipline. Here, Ananda, when a monk sees a form with the eye, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus, there has arisen in me what is agreeable, there has arisen what is disagreeable, there has arisen what is both agreeable and disagreeable, but that is conditioned, clear, dependently arisen. This is peaceful. This is superb. That is equanimity. The agreeable that arose 
the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose are eliminated in him, and equanimity is established. Okay, let me explain what the Buddha is describing here. When you have craving, desire, attachment in the mind, you're going to see some things as agreeable, and you're going to see some things as disagreeable. And based on your contact through the six sense bases, as you're taking in things through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and then the thoughts in the mind, the thinking in the mind, there's going to be certain things that are agreeable and certain things that are disagreeable. When there's craving, by the time you eliminate craving, it's just contact. There's not agreeable or disagreeable, but it's just contact. So right now, you might be experiencing agreeable contact and disagreeable contact. And what the Buddha is saying is that when these things are occurring, you know that, that you're aware, like, ah, this is agreeable to me, or ah, this is disagreeable, or ah, oh, this is both agreeable and disagreeable, and you know this. And as you see this discontentedness arising, these conditioned feelings, that you understand that that's not what you're interested in. And you would like to cut those things off and let them go. You would like to get to the equanimity, which is the peacefulness. The equanimity is the calmness and composure, the evenness of temper. When there's craving in the mind, the mind can easily go up into an excited state or it can drop off into a sad state or any of these other pleasant and painful conditioned feelings. But when you no longer have craving, desire, attachment in the mind, you've brought forth equanimity, the calmness and composure, then you won't experience this. So as you're noticing this agreeable and disagreeable that is rising in the mind based on pleasant feelings and painful feelings starting to arise, and this is all coming from craving, desire, attachment, the Buddha is saying establish this equanimity in the mind, this calmness and this composure. Bring the mind to the middle. Just as a man with good sight, having opened his eyes, might shut them, or having shut his eyes, might open them, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose are eliminated just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity established. So here he's talking about cutting off and letting that go. This is called, in the noble one's discipline, the supreme development of the sense bases regarding forms recognizable by the eye. Similar discourses were spoken in the case of hearing a sound with the ear, smelling an odor with the nose, tasting a flavor with the tongue, touching a physical object with the body, recognizing a mental object with the mind, though with different analogy as the following. Sound, just as a strong man might easily snap his fingers. Odor, just as raindrops on a slightly sloping lotus leaf roll off. Flavor, just as a strong man might easily spit out a ball of spit collected on the tip of his tongue. Physical object, just as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm. Mental object, just as if a man were to let two or three drops of water fall onto an iron plate heated for a whole day, they would quickly vaporize and vanish. So this is the whole way of gaining this ability to watch over the mind with mindfulness, to watch over these sense spaces that wherever you see the mind longing and yearning, there's going to be agreeable contact and disagreeable contact. And you knowing what that is, that's going to 
help indicate for you what your cravings, desires, attachments are. Tomorrow, Sunday, in the group learning program, I'm going to teach you how to identify your cravings. This is a big part of it, being able to observe and notice that, ah, this is agreeable to me. I get so excited when I get this particular thing or this particular thing happens, I get excited. But when these things occur, I get sad or frustrated or agitated. That's the discontentedness that is arising that is indicating to you what are your cravings, desires, attachments. You're going to need to be able to identify them. And that's essentially what the Buddha is talking about here. Because then when you identify them, you can actually restrain the mind and cut it off and let it go, training the mind to no longer long and yearn and crave after those things. So this is how you have this supreme development of the sense bases, is to be able to notice and observe what is agreeable and disagreeable to the mind. Let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. Okay, it looks like Mayu Lee is asking a question here. Is there a fine line between cutting off thoughts and suppressing a feeling? To me, it's not. Oftentimes when people hear about this, they think it is suppressing a feeling because you're cutting off and letting go. But what you would ultimately like to get to is cutting off and letting go before the mind experiences the discontentedness. That while the mind is experiencing those bodily sensations, which are part of the four foundations of mindfulness, that's where you're cutting off and letting go before it's actually become a feeling. That it's not a feeling and now you're suppressing it. It actually hasn't even become a feeling yet. That's where you would like to cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation. But sometimes you might miss it and it might become a feeling. And from there, you can cut it off and let it go. You're not pushing it down. You're cutting it off. You're redirecting the mind. You're taking the mind in another direction, not allowing it to sit there and dwell in that feeling. So to suppress it would be to push it down and bury it. It's still there. It's just being buried. Here, what you're doing is you're completely decoupling it. You're no longer allowing the mind to stay wired to have those conditioned feelings. You're breaking that up. And sometimes that means you're going to need to redirect the mind and take it in another direction. And the same thing with thoughts. If you have an unwholesome thought coming up into the mind, the mind's wired now for this unwholesome thought. And now you're redirecting the mind and taking it another direction, not allowing it to dwell in that unwholesome thought. You're not burying it. You're just cutting it off and moving in the opposite direction, not allowing the mind to dwell in that. So it's very different. It's not suppressing at all. That's what probably you've been doing and other people have been doing all throughout their life is suppressing their thoughts or suppressing their feelings. And now it's all bubbled up and buried inside. It's like sweeping the dust under the carpet. Now what you're doing on the path to enlightenment is you're taking the carpet back and the dust is flying around. And this is where you might choke a little bit. You might feel sad. You might feel miserable sometimes when you're doing some of the work on the path to enlightenment. But now you're clearing this dust out of the house so they can no longer choke you, so you can no longer experience those discontent feelings. You're eliminating the causes and conditions that are causing it. So then these discontent feelings will no longer arise. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 35. This one is titled, Need Not to Know How Much Fetters Were Worn Away. Monks, just as a carpenter or a carpenter's apprentice, inspecting the handle of a odds, I think that's how you pronounce it. This is a digging tool with a wooden handle. Sees thereon the marks of his fingers and thumb nor knows how much of the handle was worn away that day, 
nor the previous day, nor at any time, yet knows just when the wearing away has reached the end of wearing away. Even so, monks, a monk intent upon making, become known not to what extent the fetters were worn away that day, nor the previous day, nor at any time, yet knows just when the wearing away has reached the end of wearing away. So what the Buddha is talking about here is if you were digging with a tool that has a wooden handle, each day you're wearing away the wood on this wooden handle. And you're not going to know how much wood you wear away from that wooden handle every single day. But you're wearing it away each day. You're just not going to know how much you're wearing away each day. But when this handle is completely done and worn out and you need to replace the handle, you're going to know that. So you're not going to know each time, each day, how much wood you wear away. But when it's completely exhausted and you need to replace it, you're going to know that. And the Buddha is saying the same thing about the fetters or the taints or the pollutions, these defilements, that the tools and techniques that he's providing you, you're not going to know how much of ill will or conceit or doubt or any of these other fetters. You're not going to know how much of them you're wearing away each individual day. But when they're completely gone and out of the mind, you'll know that. And the reason why is because you won't see any symptoms of it anymore. So if you take something like ill will, for example, which is like anger, hatred, ill will, bitterness, frustration, agitation, annoyance, even dislike towards other beings. When you no longer have that in your mind where it's been one year, two years, three years, you haven't been angry, you haven't been frustrated, you haven't been irritated, you don't even have the slightest dislike for another being, you'll know that because you know what it feels like to have hatred. You know what it feels like to be angry and bitter and harsh because we've all done that at times in our past. But when you're gradually training your mind each day, you're not going to know how much you're wearing away with loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness, for example. But when it's completely gone and it's been one year, two years, three years, there's no anger or other lesser versions arising, you'll know that it's been completely exhausted. So all these fetters are the same thing, that you need to be dedicated, diligent, determined to work on this path, to do the work of meditation and the Eightfold Path and everything else. And that's why that confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and his community are so important. Because as you're down in the trenches and you're working and doing some of this work with meditation and some of the other tools and techniques, it can feel like a real struggle sometimes. But if you have confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community, and you're doing this work on the path to enlightenment, you know that it's only a matter of time that before you get to enlightenment. If you stay dedicated, determined, and diligent on the path, you're not going to know each day how much you wore away of these fetters. But when they're completely gone, you'll know that. Not only will you notice that there's no more symptoms of a particular fetter, but you'll notice the focus, the concentration, the clarity of mind, the deep memory. You'll notice your personal professional relationships improving. You'll notice that the mind is in a good mood. You'll notice that your personal professional relationships are improving around you. These are all indications that you're headed in the right direction. So you'll notice these things, but each day you're not going to know how much of the fetter you've worn away. So that's why you need that confidence to be able to stay dedicated and diligent on the path to enlightenment. So let me know what questions you guys have here. Again, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically, and I'll see that, and you'll be able to ask your question. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So we'll move on to the next one, which is Chapter 36.
This one is titled, The Tathagata is the one who shows the way. The Brahmin Ganaka Magalana asked, The perfectly enlightened one, When Master Gotama's disciples are thus advised and instructed by him, do they all attain Nibbana, enlightenment, the ultimate goal, or do some not attain it? When, Brahmin, they are thus advised and instructed by me, some of my disciples attain Nibbana, enlightenment, the ultimate goal, and some do not attain it. Master Gotama, since Nibbana, enlightenment exists, and the path leading to Nibbana exists, and Master Gotama is present as the guide, what is the cause and reason why, when Master Gotama's disciples are thus advised and instructed by him, some of them attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, and some do not attain it. As to that Brahman, I will ask you a question in return. Answer it as you choose. What do you think, Brahman? Are you familiar with the road leading to Rajagaha? Yes, Master Gotama, I am familiar with the road leading to Rajagaha. What do you think, Brahman? Suppose a man came who wanted to go to Rajagaha, and he approached you and said, Venerable Sir, I want to go to Rajagaha. Show me the road to Rajagaha. Then you told him, Now, good man, this road goes to Rajagaha. Follow it for a while, and you will see a certain village. Go a little further, and you will see a certain town. Go a little further, and you will see Rajagaha, with its lovely parks, groves, meadows, and ponds. Then, having been thus advised and instructed by you, he would take a wrong road and would go to the west. Then a second man came who wanted to go to Rajagaha, and he approached you and said, Venerable Sir, I want to go to Rajagaha. Then you told him, Now, good man, this road goes to Rajagaha. Follow it for a while, and you will see a certain village. Go a little further, and you will see a certain town. Go a little further, and you will see Rajagaha with its lovely parks, groves, meadows, and ponds. Then, having been thus advised and instructed by you, he would arrive safely in Rajagaha. Now, Brahmin, since Rajagaha exists, and the path leading to Rajagaha exists, and you are present as the guide, what is the cause and reason why, when those men have been thus advised and instructed by you, one man takes a wrong road and goes to the west, and one arrives safely in Rajagaha? What can I do about that, Master Gotama? I am one who shows the way. So too, Brahmin, Nibbana, enlightenment exists, and the path leading to Nibbana exists, and I am present as the guide. Yet, when my disciples have been thus advised and instructed by me, some of them attain Nibbana, the ultimate goal, and some do not attain it. What can I do about that, Brahmin? The Tathagata is the one who shows the way. Okay, so this is a very powerful discourse, as are all the teachings of the Buddha, where this individual, a Brahmin, a Hindu priest, is asking the Buddha, why do some of your students attain enlightenment and some do not? And the Buddha skillfully shares this story and has this individual answer the question themselves so that they can basically see why the Buddha's students are attaining enlightenment in some cases and in some cases they aren't. 
The Buddha is a guide. The Buddha is pointing the way. Everyone else needs to strive. And through learning and gaining instruction, they may not continue to walk forward in the way that the Buddha describes in the way that he teaches. Someone could take a wrong turn on this road, perhaps. So that's very easy for an individual to do if they're not learning, they're not reflecting to independently verify, and they're not practicing. They could easily take a wrong turn. So a Buddha or a teacher is just one who points the way and all others need to be able to strive. So an individual who's enlightened here, a Buddha is actually talking, they're going to point the way and help their students to be able to get to enlightenment, but it's up to the individual student to practice. It's their own independent journey to enlightenment. A teacher can't force you to get to enlightenment. They can't push you. They can't do anything like that. It's up to the individual to choose to walk their way to enlightenment through their own development of their practice. That's why it's important to come to classes, to read, to choose to meditate, to seek personal guidance from your teacher, to do all the things that you're going to need to do. It's your individual choices and decisions that are going to lead you closer and closer to enlightenment with a Buddha or a teacher pointing the way and helping you to be able to see how to actually get to enlightenment. Do you guys have any questions here? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I will move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 37. Here, this one's titled, Cause and Reason Why Some Beings Do Not Attain Nibbana in This Very Life. Venerable Sir, what is the cause and reason why some beings here do not attain Nibbana, enlightenment, in this very life? There are, ruler of the heavenly beings, forms recognizable by the eye, that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, centrally enticing, tempting. If a monk seeks excitement, pleasant feelings in them, welcomes them, and remains holding to them, his consciousness becomes dependent upon them and clings to them. A monk with clinging does not attain nibbana, enlightenment. In the case of sounds recognizable by the ear, odors recognizable by the nose, flavors recognizable by the tongue, physical objects recognizable by the body, mental objects recognizable by the mind, the discourses are similar to that of forms recognizable by the eye. This is the cause and reason, ruler of the heavenly beings, while some beings here do not attain Nibbana, enlightenment, in this very life. So here the Buddha is actually teaching in a heavenly being. This was documented in different parts of the Pali Canon where the Buddha is teaching beings from the heavenly realm that have come to him in order to seek guidance. And here he's teaching this ruler of the heavenly beings. And they're asking him, why do some people not attain enlightenment? And what he's describing is central desire. This is one of the hindrances to enlightenment, that if you have certain central desires that your mind's clinging to, this is going to inhibit you from being able to get to enlightenment because your mind's craving and clinging and holding on to that particular thing. So getting rid of central desire is a big part of getting to enlightenment. It's all the 10 fetters that need to be eliminated and purified from the mind to be able to get to enlightenment. But sensual desire oftentimes is a real big one because that's what's producing those pleasant feelings in the mind. That when you take in content through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind itself, that if you're longing and yearning through these sense spaces and you're not willing to give up certain things that the mind is longing and yearning for or give it up for a period of time in order to train the mind to eliminate a certain craving, 
then you'll continue to hold on to that thing and now you won't be able to experience enlightenment because the mind seeking that temporary excitement, that temporary pleasant feeling that arises, it changes and it fades away. Rather than getting to this permanent joy, the mind continues to hold on, continues to cling. It's welcoming and remaining holding on to these things. The mind's clinging to these things. So you can train your mind to let go. I'll give you an example that sometimes uh, every once in a while I'll talk with a student and they're learning about uh, giving up alcohol, that having alcohol isn't something that an enlightened being is going to do because it affects the condition of the mind, that there's a certain amount of mindfulness that you need to cultivate in order to get to enlightenment and alcohol is taking you in exactly the opposite direction. Well, sometimes people are like, oh, can't I just drink a glass of wine? You know, every week or once a month, you know, there's this flavor of the wine that the mind is is longing and yearning for. And then there's that alcohol content with it. They're not understanding that the ultimate goal of putting liquid into the body is to hydrate the body. It's not to please the tongue and please the mind. And as long as the mind's longing and yearning and craving for this thing of something like wine, then it can't let go of that thing. And if it has it, it feels pleasant feelings, it feels excited, but if it doesn't have that wine, then the mind feels agitated or annoyed or irritated, and the mind's not willing to let that go, or at that particular time when they might be talking with me. So it's up to each individual student to decide for themselves. A teacher nor a Buddha is gonna try to force or control anybody to do anything. You can't force anyone to get to enlightenment. Each individual needs to decide on themselves that they're interested and willing to do the work to be able to get to enlightenment. But if there are certain central desires that the mind is clinging to and holding on to, then it's gonna hinder you from being able to do the work to eliminate those cravings, overcome that central desire, and get to the point where the mind's peaceful and joyful permanently for the rest of this life. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. And by the way, there's more hindrances than just sensual desire, but this is a really strong one. This is one that oftentimes people really struggle with. So now we'll go to chapter 38. This one is titled, No Desire for the Nutriment, One Attains Enlightenment. If, monks, there is no desire for the nutriment, edible food, or for the nutriment, contact, or for the nutriment of volitional formations, choices, decisions, or for the nutriment, consciousness. If there is no excitement, if there is no craving, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, there is no development of name and form. Where there is no development of name and form, there is no growth of volitional formations, choices, or decisions. Where there is no growth of volitional formations, there is no production of future renewed existence. Where there is no production of future renewed existence, there is no future birth, aging, and death. Where there is no future birth, aging, and death, I say, that is without sorrow, anguish, and despair. Suppose, monks, there was a house, a hall with a peaked roof, with windows on the northern, southern, and eastern sides. When the sun rises and a beam of light enters through a window, where would it become established? On the western wall, venerable sir. If there is no western wall, where would it become established? On the earth, venerable sir. 
If there is no earth, where would it become established? On the water, venerable sir. If there were no water, where would it become established? It would not become established anywhere, venerable sir. So too, if there is no desire for the nutriment of edible food, for the nutriment contact, for the nutriment of volitional formations, choices, decisions, for the nutriment consciousness, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, there is no development of name and form. Where there is no development of name and form, there is no growth of volitional formations. Where there is no growth of volitional formations, there is no production of future renewed existence. Where there is no production of future renewed existence, there is no future birth, aging, and death. Where there is no future birth, aging, and death, I say, that is without sorrow, grief, and despair. So here the Buddha is talking about the elimination of craving and clinging for these things. He's talking about the nutriment of edible food, which means what we were talking about before is moving the mind to moderation of eating, where you're not longing, yearning, you're not gorging yourself and just trying to please the mind through the tongue, where there's not this longing, yearning for the nutriment of contact, meaning that the mind's longing, yearning through the six sense bases for contact, wanting some kind of contact, where there's not this longing, yearning for certain choices and decisions that you're not clinging to your choices and decisions, and there's not clinging to the mind itself or the consciousness. When the mind can be trained to let go of these things and no longer cling and crave for these things, then there's no fuel, there's no condition, which is going to lead to a renewed consciousness that consciousness needs craving, desire, attachment in order to continue. If you have craving, desire, attachment in the mind, this is like a fire that's burning. And that craving, desire, attachment is the fuel on the fire. And just like you have a fire with logs on this fire, as long as there's logs on the fire, the fire is going to keep burning and it's going to send off sparks. And now these sparks are going to be carried by the wind and now it's going to land and ignite a new fire. But if you get rid of the logs and you don't put any more logs on the fire and you extinguish this fire, there's no sparks that are going to be carried by the wind and there's no spark to land somewhere else and ignite a new fire. So the same thing is if you eliminate your craving, desire, attachment, that's the fuel in the mind, that's the fire that's burning. And if you extinguish that, then there's no spark that leads to the next consciousness. There can't be a renewed consciousness when craving, desire, attachment is eliminated. The mind can be cool, it can be calm, it can be collected. And because of that, you'll have eliminated your discontentedness. This is leading into helping you understand dependent origination, that if this thing exists, then that thing will come to be. If this thing does not exist, then that thing will not come to be. So the Buddha is using an analogy here of the sun coming through a house, that if the sun is coming through the house and there's a western wall, it'll be landing and established on the western wall. But if that's not there, then where would it be established? Well, on the earth. Well, if that's not there, where would it become established? On the water. Well, if that's not there, where would it become established? Nowhere, because there's nothing for the sun to land on. So it's the same thing as if there's no craving, desire, attachment in the mind, there's nothing that will allow the consciousness to continue into a new rebirth. So let me know what questions you guys have on this particular uh, chapter. The Buddha talks very clearly and 
other discourses where he talks about craving being the fuel that leads to rebirth. And here he's giving you more details and more content on that. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I will keep going into the next chapter, which is chapter 36. This is dependent origination in very short order. This is like just kind of a lead in to help you start understanding dependent origination from a very basic or summary view. But then the next chapter is going to be the detail of dependent origination. So let me read this for you and then I'll help you understand how to use this to be able to understand the detail of dependent origination. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that ceases. So the Buddha is showing you this cause and effect or this uh, action and result, this causality, that when this exists, this comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. And then conversely, when this does not exist, then this does not come to be. Or with the elimination of this, this thing ceases. He's showing you that there needs to be a cause and effect for anything to occur. There needs to be an action and result, a cause and effect or a causality. So for example, by you choosing to learn English, you can now read and write English. By you being able to read and write English, you can get a job. By you getting a job, you can gain an income. By you having an income, you can purchase clothes. By you purchasing clothes, you can go out into the public. By you going out into the public, you can make friends. By you having friends, when you need somebody to talk to and have a conversation with, you can have a conversation with that person. So this is because of this, this has come to be. Because you learned English, you're able to conversate and have friends with people. But there's all these intermediary steps that because of this, that comes to be. Because you learned English, you can get a job, right? This is the cause and effect. But then conversely, if you didn't learn English, you wouldn't be able to get a job. If you weren't able to get a job, you wouldn't be able to get an income. If you didn't have an income, you wouldn't be able to buy clothes. If you didn't buy clothes, you wouldn't be able to go outside and make friends. And then when it's time for you to have a conversation, you wouldn't be able to have anyone to talk to and have a conversation with. So this is showing you the elimination of these things, right? So this is the cause and effect, cause and effect. So this is dependent origination in summary form. And then the next chapter is the detail. But let me pause and see if you guys have any questions here. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions yet. So I'm going to move on now to the detail of dependent origination. Here, this is chapter 40 in volume 10. Dependent origination as the law of nature. Monks, with ignorance, a knowing of true reality as condition, volitional formations, choices, decisions, come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness. With consciousness as condition, name and form. With name and form as condition, the six sense bases. With the six sense bases as condition, contact. With contact as condition, feeling. With feeling as condition, craving. With craving as condition, clinging. 
with clinging as condition, existence, with existence as condition, birth, with birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the cause of this whole mass of discontentedness. Okay, I'm going to pause there. I'm just going to show you that below this, the Buddha is going into detail about each individual condition of explaining what that is. He's explaining to you aging and death, birth, existence, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, so forth and so on. He's explaining all these to you so that you understand what that is. And then he's explaining to you how one condition leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. With the arising of ignorance, there is the arising of volitional formations. With the elimination of ignorance, there is the elimination of volitional formations. Just this noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of volitional formations. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. When monks, a noble disciple, thus understands the condition, thus understands the cause of the condition, thus understands the elimination of the condition, thus understands the way leading to the elimination of the condition. He is called a noble disciple who is accomplished in view, who is accomplished in vision, who has arrived at these two true teachings, who sees these true teachings, who possesses a trainee's wisdom, who possesses a trainee's true wisdom, who has entered the stream of the teachings, a noble one with penetrative wisdom, one who stands squarely before the door to the deathless. This is enlightenment itself. Okay, so I'm going to explain to you the dependent origination, and I'll explain to you what these different things are first, but I'm going to help you understand it without having read all the individual details that the Buddha is explaining because it's quite extensive of what each individual thing is. You can read that on your own time, and I suggest you do that. This is volume 10, chapter 40. It's also in volume 5, chapter 14. But here, let me explain to you each one of these. What ignorance is, this is the unknowing of true reality. This is not knowing the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Natural Law of Gamma, all these wholesome teachings that you would need in order to purify the mind, that there's the certain lack of wisdom or referred to as ignorance or delusion or confusion or misunderstanding or unknowing of true reality. That's what that one is. Volitional formations, these are certain choices and decisions because when there's ignorance in the mind, then there's going to be certain volitional formations that you make. You might choose to kill or steal, have sexual misconduct, to lie, to take substances that cause heedlessness. These are certain choices that one is making based in craving, anger, and ignorance. So as long as this ignorance is there and you lack wisdom, you'll continue to make decisions or volitional formations based in that ignorance or unknowing a true reality. You may think you're making all the best decisions in the world and have all the best intentions, but if you're not practicing right intention or right speech or these other teachings that the Buddha taught, you're not understanding the natural law of gamma. So therefore, based on that ignorance, now you're going to make unwise decisions that produce unwholesome results or unwholesome gamma. One of the unwholesome results that you experience based on your volitional formations as condition is a consciousness. A consciousness is going to come into existence. When there's a consciousness, then the mind 
will then find what's called a name and form. What a name and form is, is this is the physical body. This is the mind now entering into the womb, in our case, of a, as a human being, into our mother, into a female, now coming together with this physical body. The Buddha describes name and form. You can see it in this particular discourse where he describes it, and he's using the four great elements of earth, water, wind, and fire. That's how they describe the physical body back then. And he describes some other criteria too, but you can oftentimes just think about this as the physical body. That's the best way to think of name and form. And this is the consciousness and the name and form coming together. And now when that has occurred, then you're going to develop the six sense bases, which are the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and the body, and then the mind itself. Then with those six sense bases, there's going to be contact through those six sense bases. The six sense bases, the eyes are now going to come in contact with forms. The ears are going to hear sounds. The nose is going to smell odors. Then there's going to be flavors on the tongue. There's going to be physical objects coming in contact with the body. And then there's going to be mental objects in the mind due to this contact. Then when you have this contact through the six sense bases, there's going to be certain feelings, either pleasure, pain, or neither painful nor pleasant. That's what's going to arise. When those feelings are arising, now as you experience the pleasant feelings, the mind's going to start craving and craving and craving. You're going to want more, want more, want more. The mind's going to start chasing and longing and yearning after things. Then as you acquire those certain things, the mind's going to start clinging. You're going to start holding on to those things, wanting them to be permanent. That's the clinging. Then this is going to lead to existence in one of the five realms. Because the mind is craving and clinging, this is the fuel that's going to lead to existence, which is produced by birth. And now when there's birth, there's going to be aging and death. This is the impermanent nature of existence, that you're going to arise, change, and fade away. This is aging and death. And then because of birth, aging, and death coming into this world, there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind. Now there's going to be sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. Those are all going to come about due to the mind's craving in this existence. This is how the whole mass of discontentedness comes to be. So what the Buddha is explaining to you is the details here of how you come into the world, how you come into existence, and how you experience discontentedness. It's because of ignorance that craving continues to exist and because of craving, you now experience discontentedness, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. While we talk about the three poisons as craving, anger, and ignorance, it's really because of ignorance that craving and anger continues to exist. And that's why from the first time you might have started learning with me, I share with you not to believe anything. Don't believe anything because that's not going to help you to eradicate ignorance. With ignorance as condition, the way to eradicate that is not through belief. The way you eradicate it is to get to wisdom. So I teach all students when they first start learning with me to learn, to reflect, independently verify, and practice. That's what's going to get you to wisdom. And the more wisdom that you have, now your volitional formations will be based in wisdom. The wisdom is that eightfold path. That's what's going to teach you how to now make wise decisions about the mind, about your moral conduct, 
having this wisdom to then be able to function in the world where you're only producing wholesome gamma. And then there won't be a consciousness that comes into existence. Then it won't find a name and form, a physical body. Then there won't be the six sense bases. There won't be contact through those six sense bases. There won't be feeling. There won't be craving or clinging. You won't come into existence continuing to be reborn over and over. So then you won't experience aging and death, and you won't experience sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. That's how you eliminate this whole mass of discontentedness, is by cultivating wisdom. Cultivating wisdom of how to eliminate craving and how to eliminate anger. That's what's going to actually lead to the purification of the mind, eliminating those 10 fetters. And here, the Buddha is giving you the detail which is very helpful for you to understand because this is also not only that you understand that wisdom needs to be cultivated, but you can also understand why rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship or prayer isn't part of what the Buddha taught because those things don't lead to wisdom. You're trying to antidote this ignorance so you can have volitional formations that are informed by wisdom, but you can't get to that as long as you're doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. That's not what leads to the development of wisdom. So you can dismantle all of this. You can dismantle discontentedness by eliminating ignorance. By eliminating ignorance, that's going to dismantle the whole thing because that's the cause and effect, cause and effect. If you don't have ignorance, you can't get to discontentedness. It's only because of ignorance that one experiences this continuous craving and ultimately gets to discontentedness. But when you eradicate ignorance, that condition no longer exists, then you're not going to experience the discontentedness. And this is why the Buddha refers to someone who's attained enlightenment, thus eliminated discontentedness as having attained final knowledge, that you now have fully cultivated wisdom of the path to enlightenment. So let me see what questions you guys have here. It looks like EY is asking a question. Let me read this. Most people have very strong central desire. Me, it caused me quite a bit of pain because I cannot get the agreeable contact in many areas of my life and I crave for them. I know meditation is supposed to help guard these senses and I have been trying these few months and finding it very challenging to cut it off and divert to the breath. Is there anything I can do to reduce the central desire to hopefully feel better. Only a few months, that's a very short time, EY. It takes gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress to get the mind to the point where it's willing to let go. You're gonna notice for multiple years, you're gonna have various cravings, but you should be able to shed away the outer layers of your cravings, like say, Say you have a craving for ice cream or chocolate, these little simple things, you can probably let those go pretty easily, right? Like the mind can be trained to let those go. The more you accumulate the benefits of practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity, that's going to help you to shed away these craving desires attachments. And this is going to kind of soften up the mind and make it easier for you to restrain the mind and pull it back. But then there are other techniques that you need, but you need breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to be underway in order for these other techniques to be able to be effective. I'm going to be teaching this tomorrow in our group learning program on Sunday, where you develop this approach 
to putting a plan together to almost surgically remove attachments. So if you would like to attend that tomorrow, or if you can't attend, you can listen to the replay where I'm going to teach the students a four-step process of how to, once they have breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity underway, of how to now almost surgically go in and remove certain cravings. But even with that, it's going to take multiple times. Even though we say cut it off and let it go, if you have a craving, let's just say something as simple as coffee when I was eliminating coffee. It took me many months just to get rid of coffee, right? Like I went like two or three days without a coffee and then I had one, right? It was like my craving was there. And then ultimately I built up to a week and then I had one. I built up to two weeks and then I had one. I built up to, you know, three weeks and then I had another one. And then I built up to four and six weeks and then I had one. I get all the way to eight weeks of no coffee and then I had one. Right. Or at least I had a third of one or a half of one before I threw that away. It was like, I'm never going to have a coffee again. So just getting rid of coffee, it took, you know, multiple months to do that. So I know that when someone gets onto the path, it's like a big trash heap of all these cravings that are in the mind. That's what the Buddha is saying, this whole mass of discontentedness. It's like you're standing on the top of a trash heap. And when you start clearing off the trash, you think you're getting to solid ground, but there's more trash under your feet. and You got to keep clearing that off and clearing it off and clearing it off. It'll take you many years to go through this, but you just do it slowly but surely. Don't be in a rush. Don't crave to eliminate craving, right? You would like to just do it gradually, slowly but surely. With breathing, mindfulness, meditation, and generosity, you're heading in the right direction with that. So you keep that ongoing, being determined and diligent. And then you also do the things that I'm going to share tomorrow in the class to be able to surgically go in. And as you build up some confidence in having applied these methodologies and you see the mind becoming more peaceful, this can also arise craving in the mind because as you're starting to let go of some of the cravings and you see some of the peacefulness come into the mind, you might want to hurry up and get to the end of the path. But if you don't think of it as if there is an end to the path, there isn't like a finish line that you're going to cross, just know that you're going to be on this path your whole life. You just gradually work towards it. So don't have craving to eliminate craving, but just stay dedicated and diligent. Keep learning, building up your breathing mindfulness, meditation, and your generosity building up your loving kindness meditation and your practice of loving kindness in daily life through your intention, speech, and actions, and developing your wisdom, and then developing your knowledge through the group learning program and the Pali Canon, an English study group, and all the other learning opportunities that you have. Slowly but surely, you build up each aspect of your practice. And wherever you see that you need to eliminate a certain craving, some people like to approach it where you eliminate the easier ones first, right? Maybe food's an easy one for you or something else. And the deeper attachments might be around till later, right? Like some for some people, it might be sex or something like this that's going to be something way down the line that one might eliminate. But right now, if you build up your mind's ability to let go of some of the lighter attachments and build that success and build that confidence in the mind, because you'll need to learn the methodology of how to do it, through the Eightfold Path, and then applying that consistently as you let go of some of these smaller attachments and see the success, and you see the concentration and clarity coming into the mind, that can give you the confidence to then tackle the larger ones down the road. So keep learning, keep growing, keep applying the teachings. You're going to need to accumulate more benefits, and then I suggest you learn what I'm going to teach tomorrow. Okay, here's some more from EY. It's really difficult. Nothing is easy. 
But yes, I find it slightly easier to let go. Maybe intensity is reduced. Of course, coming to lessons to slowly believe in the teachings over and over again over time helps. Thanks, Teacher David. You're welcome, EY. I don't encourage you to believe the teachings, though. Be sure you're learning, reflecting, to independently verify and practice. The path to enlightenment is not easy, but it's also not difficult either. We've made it more difficult over the years as people have gotten further and further away from the teachings. At one time, you had certain cravings and you weren't aware of what was going on in the mind. You had certain cravings and you experienced pleasant feelings based on those cravings. And as long as your mind's got those cravings and clinging, you experience those conditioned pleasant feelings. And now as you're starting to let go of those cravings, the mind's going to move to these painful feelings. And that's where it can feel like a real struggle because you experience the pleasant feelings that are conditional in the past. Now, when you're letting go and severing those cravings, there's going to be some painful feelings arise in the mind. I describe this as walking through the fire in order to appreciate the fresh air on the other side. So you're going to need to walk through some fires in order to get to the fresh air on the other side where the mind can be peaceful and joyful. So if you're feeling struggles, uh, you can always throttle back a little bit and then, you know, kind of go forward again. But that struggle is an indication that you must be doing the work. You must be really doing what you need to do if you're feeling that struggle. But the Buddha teaches, and I share as well, to not shrink back from that struggle. Um, you might be able to you know, sit down. Like if you're climbing a mountain, right, and you're walking up the mountain and your thighs start hurting or your knees or your ankles or your hips, you're going to sit down on a log, take a breath, take a couple sips of water and then after you rest for a little while then you're going to get up and walk up the mountain and you might have to rest a few times on your way up the mountain but eventually you get to the top of the mountain and you're so glad you did because there's a beautiful view there's lots of sunshine there's fresh air it's a wonderful opportunity to stay up there right so it's the same thing on your way to enlightenment you might notice that your thighs are hurting, your ankles are hurting, your knees are hurting, the mind's hurting. You might notice this struggle. And this is where sometimes you might need to just sit down, take a little breather, and then ultimately continue your way up the mountain. But the difference is, is that when you get to the top of the mountain with enlightenment, you never have to come back down the other side. That you get to enjoy the view, you get to enjoy the fresh air, you get to enjoy everything and stay up at the top of that summit with the enlightened mind for the rest of this life with that higher consciousness. So just focus on one foot in front of the other, whether it's, I need to meditate tonight, or I need to go to class tonight, I need to ask this question tonight, I need to read this book tonight, whatever it is that you need to do, just one step at a time, because the mountain looks really tall when you're standing at the bottom, or even when you're making your way up, it looks really tall. But if you're interested in that view and getting to the top of the mountain, you might need to take a break here and there, and just stay dedicated and diligent to making your way up the mountain. All right, so it looks like Francis, you have a question if you'd like to go ahead, sir. Uh, yeah, um, you mentioned about the, during the last chapter, uh, about the wisdom part, about the wrong observers and so, uh, behaviors, you know, that is part of the three factors, yeah? I just want to share something uh, before I ask a question. Uh, you know that in some of most Asian homes, uh, a lot of people through generation to generation, they just leave, uh, they put in a statue on the altar, they put in sands, they burn uh, those candles and they offer fruits and all that. 
as prayers uh, in a daily basis. I was doing that for years, you know, that because I just followed blindly. Yeah? Until now, I come to the path, I realized that this is wrong observances. Now, my question is that I am just wanted to do some things like, you know, off, uh, put up the uh, incense and uh, burn the candles because my wife believes that more than anything else. So I just want to uh, help her in the morning to, to do that part so that, you know, she said, okay, uh, that part is done. Um, but I do not want to uh, do any like prayer to part of statue, asking for this, asking for that. I just do it, you know. So am I doing it wrongly? Uh, I would say wrongly. Is it something that is uh, uh, not wise to do? Uh, am I not uh, observing the, the feathers of the wrong observances thing? So I'm a bit confused on that. Could you give me some sharing on this? Sure. So the wrong observances, it's not the actions of doing a particular thing. It's what's going on in the mind. So for example, say you have a family member who would like to go to a mosque or to a church and you go there with them as a part of a social event and they're doing some rites and rituals and ceremonies and maybe you're even there too involved in that but your mind knows that none of this is going to lead to wisdom none of this is going to lead to enlightenment none of this is going to improve the condition of the mind that actually leads one to enlightenment now if you understand that in the mind you don't have wrong observances. Just because you're going to the event doesn't mean you have wrong observances. It's what's going on in the mind. Do you have the wisdom to understand that this is not going to lead to enlightenment because you've deeply penetrated dependent origination? Now, it's, in my opinion, wise to, you know, understand these things, not only from the mental side, but also like, you know, like if I took my son, for example, to a church or to a mosque or something, uh, I would be sure that he understands that these things aren't what leads to enlightenment. He already understands that at this age, but I would make sure that the people around me. So if you have loving kindness and compassion for your wife, while you may continue to do these things now, and that might be something that you guys do in your home, I would at different times perhaps open up conversation with her to help her if you haven't already to understand that these things aren't going to lead to wisdom and enlightenment and what she chooses to do is up to her right your role on the path to enlightenment is not to convince other people to do anything specific or anything like that but just out of loving kindness and compassion for her you could ensure that she understands those things because if you just continue to do these things as you mentioned blindly and then the people around you didn't realize what was going on then this can lead people to think that because you're on the path to enlightenment and you're doing these things that this is what the path to enlightenment is so here at our home we no longer have any buddhist statues or an altar or any of those kinds of things even though at one time we did uh, we don't do any of that stuff. When I go to the temple, you know, I don't bow down to statues. I don't, you know, feed the statues. I don't light incense. I don't do any of that stuff because I know that none of it leads to enlightenment and I'm showing people what it takes to get to enlightenment. But how much of that you decide to adopt for your own life to help people around you to understand what the path to enlightenment is up to you. That's your own personal choice. But to get rid of the wrong observances is all about what the mind understands, not about the actions. In this particular okay, ca- in this particular case, by the okay. way, in terms of in terms of like moral conduct, 
it's about the mind in the actions. But in terms of wrong observances, it's about what's going on in the mind. Yeah, I got it now. Um, I, I know that for my mom, you know, it's very hard to uh, talk to her about this. I try so many times. And like you've mentioned before, uh, just let it go. You know, if people are not ready, uh, that, that, that's it. You know, that is their, their, their life. Uh, for my wife, it's, you know, I haven't tried yet. You know, maybe I'll do that, you know, uh, slowly, progressively. Uh, but for me now, it's just that I do not, I'm now starting to practice in the morning. I do not burn any more incense. I just like the candle, but my mom, once she's old, you know, so she said you cannot have, uh, see clearly how to light the candle. So mm-hmm. I do it out of compassion and with kindness to her. I do it so that she can uh, burn the incense later on and all that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that would be my approach right now. Today, I don't really uh, say any more prayers to any, any of the statues. Uh, I'm even now trying to uh, burn incense. I only do one thing, it's just a light the candle for my mom. That's it. So, uh, this should be okay, yeah? Uh, as long as you understand in your mind that lighting that candle isn't going to lead to your enlightenment or your mom's, that's what it means to understand dependent origination partly in to understand that wrong observances isn't going to lead to enlightenment. Right. Yeah, I, I got that part, uh, I got that part. So uh, in my mind, it's very important when I do that thing and all that. So uh, I'm actually attuned to the dependent origination uh, cycle. I'm already aware of that. So yeah, so now I feel better now with that, with that uh, so-called uh, enlightened uh, advice. Thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. Here on YouTube, Tonka has a question. She says, so is it volitional formations or craving that causes a new consciousness? So craving is the fuel that leads to rebirth, right? As long as there's craving, there's craving and desire. The Buddha is showing you the detail of that, right? So he's showing you that the reason why craving exists is because of ignorance. That's where he's showing you the detail of it. So he's showing you different layers here, uh, uh, Tonka. So in the Four Noble Truths, he's explaining to you craving. In other places, he says very clearly that it's craving that leads to rebirth. But here he's showing you the whole reason why craving exists is because of ignorance. And then that leads to volitional formations. So here he's showing you the individual steps of one to the other, to the other, to the other. That's why you're seeing here that it's ignorance that leads to volitional formations and then volitional formations leads to consciousness. It's your choices and decisions to not eliminate craving that then leads to consciousness, right? So you can see it that way. And the Buddha is helping you to see the detail of that. But it's ultimately craving. That's what you're focused on eliminating in order to eliminate the causes and conditions that lead to rebirth. But in order to eliminate craving, you're going to need to eliminate ignorance. You're going to need to cultivate wisdom. So this is the detail of showing you that. So we usually talk about it as craving, anger, and ignorance. But it's really because of ignorance, craving continues to exist. And because of craving, then you're going to experience anger or the Buddha is describing these as sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. These are painful feelings. So this is the detailed work to understand that. Here EY is asking some question. He says, a lot of psychological feel better effect 
of the daily issues I feel in terms of these rituals, but I'm trying to stop doing these. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, those those are just conditioned feelings that you're experiencing, EY, that as long as you're doing those rites and rituals, you get those pleasant feelings. And this is where you can restrain the mind and you can pull it back and you can choose to not do those things, realizing that it's cause and effect, action and result. That's what's going to lead to any results that you experience in your life. If you're lighting a candle, if you're lighting incense, if you're feeding statues, praying to statues, bowing to statues, None of that is cultivating wisdom. It's actually leaving the mind in its delusion and its confusion and its misunderstanding. So you can eliminate that through uh, learning and practicing to be able to train the mind. And then you can see the truth of what's really, truly leading to improved condition of mind and the condition of your life. Here we have some more coming in in Facebook. What is the difference between sensation and perception? So sensation is a bodily sensation. This is associated with craving, desire, attachment, that when there's a craving, desire, attachment in the mind, there's gonna be a bodily sensation that arises. This is an early indication to you that your mind is about to experience a discontent feeling. This is part of the four foundations of mindfulness. What a perception is, is this is part of the five aggregates. A perception is your views and opinions of the world, which may or may not be true. Oftentimes the unenlightened mind is clinging to its perceptions, the way you perceive the world, because you're looking through the pollution of the mind. You're looking through the 10 fetters. And as you look out through the world, it's like looking at a dirty window. And now you're looking out through your perceptions. And as long as you cling to that dirty window, as long as you cling to those perceptions, you're going to view the world in a certain way, which oftentimes isn't actually true reality. But what you're doing on the path to enlightenment is you're eliminating your clinging to all things, including your perceptions. And you're bringing in the wisdom to now clear out your dirty window. So now you can see the world very clearly and you can see these natural laws. So that's a difference between a bodily sensation, which is part of the four foundations of mindfulness, and a perception, which is part of the five aggregates. And the five aggregates or five collections or five elements, those are helping you to understand what a living being is so that you can then practice the first precept more closely. And you understand that you are a living being because your mind will oftentimes cling to these five aggregates, which are form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, in consciousness and you need to eliminate your clinging to all of those things. Mayuli is asking a question. I guess what my question is, if we eliminate volitional formations, how would we make choices and decisions to eliminate ignorance and cultivate wisdom? Okay, so let me go back to dependent origination. What the Buddha is explaining to you here is how your coming into the world. This is explaining the cycle of rebirth and explaining how you come into the world and how you keep experiencing discontentedness over and over and over again. So maybe let me go down here to this chart that I put in here. Okay, so because of ignorance in the past and volitional formations, so certain decisions that you made in the past, because of those past causes, there's now these present effects that you're experiencing a consciousness, which is the mind, name and form, which is the physical body, the six sense spaces, contact and feeling. You're experiencing all those things now based on decisions that were made in the past. Because of ignorance, you made choices and decisions that you did not eliminate craving, anger and ignorance. 
So because of that, there is this new life that now has consciousness in a physical body, which then forms the six sense bases, experiences contact, and then you have feelings of discontentedness, pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. The present causes of craving and clinging in this existence can lead to future effects, which is the birth and then aging, death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. So the Buddha is showing you based on things that happened in the past, there are certain present effects and there are certain present causes that are going to lead to future effects. And this is showing you this cycle of rebirth. But now what you would like to do is in this present life is you would like to get to the point where you now eliminate ignorance by cultivating wisdom. And now you will no longer make volitional formations based in ignorance. You'll make volitional formations based in wisdom. So there's still going to be decisions that you make as an enlightened being. When your mind has fully cultivated wisdom, no longer having ignorance, you'll still make volitional formations. But those volitional formations aren't going to be based in ignorance anymore. They're going to be based in wisdom, which is then going to lead to this uh, result of wholesome gamma, that you're going to now experience the wholesome results because you're now making decisions based in wisdom. So because of that, you've eliminated ignorance. You're eliminating ignorant volitional formations. You're eliminating uh, ignorant choices and decisions. That would then lead to a consciousness. This is how you eliminate your continued rebirth. Because then without a consciousness, there won't be a name and form. There won't be the six sense bases, contact, feeling, because you would have eliminated craving, clinging, and existence. And then there won't be any more birth, aging, and death. So you'll no longer experience this continuous cycle over and over and over again. I think that might answer your question there, Mayuli. But if for some reason you have more, just feel free to follow that up. Let me see. Okay, here's some more from Mayuli. With volitional formations, choices, and decisions, what Buddha is saying is to eliminate the volitional formations to eliminate ignorance. Uh, no, he's actually saying eliminate your ignorance, which is leading to ignorant volitional formations. So by cultivating wisdom, now your decisions will be based in wisdom, and now that'll produce wholesome results or wholesome gamma. But we cannot eliminate volitional formations because we still need to make that choice and decision to cultivate wisdom. Is that correct? So you heard what I said earlier, that you will cultivate wisdom. So now you will have dismantled this, that if you understand that ignorance in the mind is leading to unwise volitional formations, which is now producing unwholesome results or unwholesome gamma, when you now eliminate the ignorance or unknowing of true reality when that is now wisdom now you still have volitional formations as an enlightened being but they're based in wisdom and now you're going to be producing the wholesome results or wholesome karma and that's why this will all be completely dismantled that you're no longer making unwise decisions that are producing unwholesome results or unwholesome gamma. So it's never going to get to a consciousness because the causes and conditions that lead to renewed consciousness have been eliminated. And you can see here, if you read any of these things, the Buddha is explaining how to eliminate the individual items by the Eightfold Path. Here you can see it where he talks about just this noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of aging and death, 
that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. He says that for each one. So what you're doing is you're cultivating the wisdom of the Eightfold Path through learning, reflecting, and practicing. And now as you're practicing more and more of the Eightfold Path, dialing that in closer and closer, you're making wiser and wiser decisions that are producing wholesome results or wholesome gamma. And that's how you dismantle dependent origination, that you cultivate wisdom and get rid of this ignorance so that now your volitional formations are only going to be based in wise decision-making. Okay, let me see if there's any more questions anywhere. I see something here from Francis. Is consciousness here means awareness of mind? Consciousness is the mind itself. That's what consciousness is here. Uh, awareness of mind is mindfulness. So the mindfulness is to have awareness of the mind, where the consciousness itself is the mind. So that's just another word for mind. It's being used as consciousness instead of the mind. So it's the mind and the body that are coming together. Here, I'll show you down here where the Buddha is describing consciousness in name and form. So here's where the Buddha describes consciousness. He's explaining to you uh, consciousness, meaning the mind, having this awareness through the uh, six sense bases. So remember what ear consciousness, what eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness is, is it's the internal sense base and then the external sense bases. So this is awareness through the mind of contact through these six sense bases. And then name and form here, since this is connected, I talk about the mind and the body coming together. Here you can see he describes it as feeling, perception, volitional formations, con uh, contact, and consciousness. This is essentially the five aggregates, uh, less form, and adding contact. So these are the four aggregates of feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness with contact in there as well. But then this name, that's what name is. And then the form, what he's talking about with form, is uh, right here. The four great elements of uh, what that is, is earth, water, wind, and fire. You can understand that that's how they describe the physical body during his time. Now we talk about cells and molecules and atoms and bones and blood and all these kinds of things. Back then they would describe the body through these four great elements. That's what form is. So when you look at these two things together, this is essentially the physical body. So it's the mind and the physical body coming together, which consciousness then leads to the physical body. It comes together in the womb of your mother. But if there's no consciousness, then it won't take up a name and form. There won't be an existence. Let's see. I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. Okay. If you guys haven't read these chapters, I encourage you to do so. It will really help you to be able to read the individual chapters of the content that the Buddha is sharing, but then also the content that I'm sharing too in each one of these chapters. And as you have questions, you can always ask in class, you can post in the Facebook group, you can send me a private message, or you can schedule personal guidance. You're going to need to sit with these teachings 
here in the study group, this is an opportunity for you to get clarity on certain things, but you're going to need to spend time outside of class to learn and understand these teachings. Dependent origination is one of those teachings that you need to visit several times and really set with it and think about it and look at the world around you so you can see how this is true. And that is what will help you to penetrate it. And where you're having challenges to independently verify the truth of any of these uh, teachings, including dependent origination, that's where you reach out and ask me, David, how did you independently verify this? You know, and then I will help you to understand that. So next week, we're going to go into the next part of the book, which is the next several chapters. So you can read those before class and or after class if you'd like. Then tomorrow, I'm going to be in volume one, chapter 13. That's where you're going to be learning how to identify your cravings through analysis of the mind that's going to help you to be able to surgically remove the cravings, desires, attachments from the mind. Then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together. So you can attend these classes live either Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday at 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. Thai time, whatever time that is in your time zone. Or you can listen to the recordings on YouTube, on Facebook, or on our podcast. So thank you all for joining. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your dedication and diligence to continuing to learn the teachings of the Buddha. As you need help, feel free to reach out for support, and I'm here to help you. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.